Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody out this morning. Let's all bow our heads and uh, we'll begin with a word of prayer. Our Father God, we're thankful for this day and for your goodness to us and uh, this time that we can have together. And we pray uh, that thy spirit might lead us and guide us into thy truth. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought for a promise, I would turn to uh, this wonderful promise in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. It says, this I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's a magnificent promise, is it not? Uh, I think one of our failures today and many of our best churches is a failure to emphasize the, uh, the Holy Spirit the way we should. Here this is a promise that if we'll walk in the spirit, we'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Uh, I was reading a, um, in fact, I've seen this in a couple of organizations uh, one organization that was uh, supposed to be working with alcoholics and things like that, <clears throat> and they had a wonderful little brochure. But I noticed that almost there was no mention of the Holy Spirit in it. Now, if you're dealing with Christians <laughs> and you're trying to help people break addiction, why would you ignore the Holy Spirit? This is the primary promise of how to get power over the, uh, over the addictions of the, of the flesh, is it not? We need this emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you look at the, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is dealing with these very carnal Christians, the book of Galatians, the book of Romans, uh, where uh, we're talking about sanctification, how to live holy lives, uh, there's a, an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Uh, Romans 7 is a picture of Paul, who is, I think, a regenerate man. In Romans 7, Paul is a saved man. But he's talking about how he's been defeated. In this flesh dwelleth no good thing. Uh, those things that I want to do, I can't do, and things I, do, I don't want to do, I do. He's talking about the struggle of the flesh. And so in, in Romans 7, I think he's trying to draw the picture of a saved man a regenerate man who hasn't recognized the importance of the Holy Spirit in getting power over sin. Then you come to Romans 8, then you see this great emphasis on the Holy Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death and so on. Well, I think this is a magnificent promise that doesn't get near the emphasis I think that we ought to have. What's he telling those Corinthians? says, your problem is you've been ignoring the Holy Spirit. And that's basically what he's saying, isn't it? Uh, you, uh, you're carnal. Uh, you walk as men. You walk like unsaved people. And uh, then he comes to that, uh, his argument uh, culminates there in the 6, 19, and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? <laughs> and uh, they had been ignoring the Holy Spirit. I think that's one of our, uh, I think a, uh, that's a weakness in our, we don't emphasize that the way we should, I don't think, today in most of our churches. We need the wonderful power of the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Turn, if you would, to the book of Daniel. I'm trying to cover about a chapter every Sunday, if we can. But uh, Daniel, uh, chapter 3. If you remember now, uh, last week, chapter 2, uh, Daniel interpreted this magnificent dream that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had. And this dream now is very, very important. 
in that uh, God shows this uh, pagan king, this Gentile king, all of future history <laughs> from the Babylonian empire all the way to the second coming of Christ. What a magnificent dream this was to show us all human history and the history of the uh, Gentile nations and their relation to Israel from the time of what is called the Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean Empire, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar, all the way through history to the time of the second coming of Christ. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar will destroy the temple. And that begins what the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. From that time forward, the Gentiles will be uh, over Israel, will dominate and control Israel until the second coming of Christ when Christ will break the power of Antichrist. Now in chapter 3, we see a type or a picture of the Antichrist. The Antichrist will go into the temple, make himself as God and demand worship. Those who refuse to worship Antichrist will be, uh, will be killed. And that uh, we see a, a, an outline or a type or a picture of the power of Antichrist compelling a religious uniformity and conformity. And uh, so uh, it's a magnificent dream. Then later on, there'll be another vision by Daniel in chapter 7, uh, also of these world empires and all of uh, future history. Now let's pick up the story in chapter 3. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, remember now he's going to reign for a long period of time. He'll come to power probably around 605 B.C. His father will die and he'll become the uh, ruler of the Babylonian Empire. He will rule for, till 562, so he has a long reign. Remember, we believe that Daniel probably wrote the book of Daniel somewhere around 3530 uh, B.C. But, uh, all right. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. You remember now the visage, uh, this vision, uh, this uh, statue that we saw last week? I gave you a handout on that. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. Well, evidently, have you ever heard the expression, somebody, something goes to somebody's head? You know, they get the biggies, you know. <laughs> well, uh, this evidently went to his head. He was the head of gold. So he's going to make a statue that's going to be about, it's going to be 90 feet high. That's about the size of an eight-story building. And then the, uh, but it'd only be about nine feet wide. It's going to look, uh, we don't know what it's going to look like. There's maybe been a great base, a great foundation that elevated the statue and uh, so on. Uh, the archaeologists some years ago were about six miles south of Babylon, ancient Babylon. They found a great big base uh, buried in the ground. And it was on a very big, a very wide plain. Uh, here at Word of God calls it Dura, the plain of Dura, just uh, uh, in, in the area of Babylon. And so it's, very, it's quite possible that base, <laughs> that big block base that they found there in the, uh, near Babylon, six miles south of Babylon, may have been the foundation for this uh, statue. We don't know. But uh, it says, made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits, about 90 feet, and the breadth... There are six cubits, about nine feet. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent to gather together the princes, 
the governors and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now remember, this is an empire that covers and controls most of the then known world at the time. So we're probably talking about thousands of uh, all kinds of political rulers, judges, marshals, sheriffs, uh, what they call satraps, the rulers of uh, different provinces. And so we're talking about probably about thousands of people. And he's put out a, he sent out a, a, a herald or a call to everybody in the empire that holds some political office of some kind. So it's probably primarily a political image uh, trying to preserve political unity. Throughout most of history, uh, governments in Europe and the Middle Ages always believed that the government had to control the religion uh, to, uh, to make sure that the government was secure and safe. And uh, any religious dissent was looked upon as disloyalty. Uh, they, uh, they called it sedition. So if you disagreed with the religion of the government, you were guilty of sedition. Uh, you were looked upon as a traitor trying to overthrow the government. So to secure the government, to secure the state, everybody had to conform religiously. Religious dissent was considered very, very dangerous. Anybody who disagrees with the religion of the government will undermine the government. And, uh, and so uh, you can see why they would use uh, uh, force, uh, compel people to worship. Because to fail to worship and to, uh, was, to, was to prove uh, yourself to be disloyal to the government. And we'll look at more of that in just a minute. But anyhow, he called, I think he's trying to, with this statue, I think he's trying to basically organize his empire and uh, centralize it. And then very much uh, woven into the politics was the religion. In America, we talk about separation of church and state. Well, the ancient world never separated church and state. Uh, the king or the ruler or the pharaoh was always considered the most important religious official. Uh, the emperor of the Roman Empire was considered the most important religious official. If you study the history of the Roman Catholic Church, much their organization, the terms they use like pontiff and things like that, they borrowed from the Roman government. And so the, the organization of the Catholic Church was really modeled on the, uh, the government of the Roman Empire. Verse uh, 3, then the princes, the governors, and it gives a list of all these rulers. It says that the Nebuchadnezzar, there's the bottom of verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, languages. You can see he's tried to organize the whole empire across the ancient world. And so we're talking about people, nations, languages. And uh, so the herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages. The idea was that you physically coerce people to worship. Uh, they didn't care about the attitude of your heart. They just cared what your body did. And if your body uh, worshipped, uh, that's all they cared about. They said the Emperor Charlemagne uh, baptized 800 people in one day. As long as you went through the formality of going underwater, being baptized then you were converted to Christianity, quote, unquote. They didn't care about your heart condition or what you believe. They just cared about what happened to your body. Did your body 
go under the water. Here, in this case, uh, are you going to fall to the ground, uh, prostrate, and worship the statue? He has no concern about your attitude, what you believe, your religion one way or the other, as long as you conform outwardly. It says that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, then he gives a list of all these musical instruments. Interesting how it's accompanied by music, is it not? And music has wonderful, wonderful power <laughs> to persuade people and so on. I think it was Plato who said, let me write the music rather than the laws. If you let me write the music, I can control the government. And there's a lot of truth in that, is there not? Music is a powerful, powerful weapon. But anyhow, and all, uh, that what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, uh, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. So here we see now uh, idolatry. Woven into this is, uh, is basically uh, would be loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps even worship of Nebuchadnezzar. I think it's worship of him because I think here is a type or a picture of the Antichrist. When Antichrist goes into the temple, breaks the covenant with Israel in the middle of the tribulation period, he's going to demand worship. He's going to oppose God and assume the powers of God. And he's going to demand worship. And here I think we see a real type, a real picture of the Antichrist here in this, in this chapter. It says, And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So we can see here now the, the whole idea here is to unify and centralize the power of the empire and unify the power and centralize the power of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the head of gold. Remember now in that statue, uh, as you went uh, down the body of the statue, uh, the, the quality of the uh, metals uh, uh, deteriorated. You went from gold, then to silver, then to brass, and then to iron, then iron and clay. And so the uh, commentators debate over that, what that means. But I think it simply means that basically the, each empire is less glorious and in one sense, less centrally unified than that of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the head of gold. And by the time you get to the ten toes, I think that represents the revived Roman Empire, perhaps the ten nations uh, that makes up the European Union. A lot of prophecy scholars believe that out of the European Union, Antichrist will come, and that there's ten, but there's been 16 nations. The number varies. But they believe that that uh, European Union will be a mixture of strong dictatorships and of democracy, so the democracies would uh, be represented by the clay, that the government would be weak and uh, not very well unified and so on. Uh, the iron would be a dictatorship like uh, North Korea or China or Russia, and uh, therefore the iron represents a, a strong dictatorial type of government. But uh, that European Union will be a mixture of weak governments, a mixture of dictatorships and democracies. But those ten toes will represent the revived Roman Empire. And then, the, of course, in the, in, the vision, in the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, there's going to be a great stone made without hands uh, who will come and who will smash and destroy those kingdoms. Uh, that's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> who will destroy all the nations at the tribulation period and so on and assume power and will set up the millennium.
All right. But uh, come to verse 7, says, Therefore at that time when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, so on, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So everybody now in the known world that have come to this now will all fall down and worship. And of course, this is a direct violation of the word of God. A direct violation of the first commandment. Is it not? Thou shalt have no other gods before me and so on. So once again, the convictions, uh, the values of the uh, uh, children of God are being challenged. And uh, this time they're going to uh, once again uh, have to exercise conviction. We talked about conviction last time. What is a conviction? We don't have much conviction today. <laughs> what is a conviction? A strongly held belief. How strong is it? Yeah. A conviction is something you're willing to die for or to sacrifice for. Are you willing to, I don't know that I'm martyr material to tell you the truth. I, I will know, I guess, someday. <laughs> this, this death business, I kind of waver on it every now and then. Am I going to die for the faith? I don't know. I hope I would. I hope, but you don't want to be like Peter and brag. You don't know what you might do. Uh, I believe the Lord will give special grace when it comes time to be persecuted. Uh, it's marvelous how many of the uh, great people of God through the ages have been uh, testify how God gave wonderful grace during, during times of terrible pain and persecution. Uh, Sir Thomas More, uh, the Chancellor of England, who uh, defended the Roman Catholic Church, actually set up a torture chamber in his own home. And he tortured a, a Baptist by the name of John Bainham. And, uh, and whipped him and supposedly, uh, I don't know what all he did, but he, he suffered uh, terribly. And he told uh, Thomas More and those that persecuted him, says, God gave wonderful grace. <laughs> he said, God gave such grace, I actually felt no pain. And when Obadiah Holmes was whipped by the Puritans <clears throat> in 1651 in, on the Boston Commons, uh, those Puritans had a man whip Obadiah Holmes, a Baptist. He was whipped for the crime of Anabaptistry. He dared challenge the idea that you ought to baptize infants. He said you shouldn't baptize infants. Uh, John Cotton, uh, the preacher, said that a man that would deny infant baptism ought to be put to death. He's a soul murderer. To deny infant baptism is to murder the soul. He must have believed in baptismal regeneration, did he not? To refuse to baptize an infant is to murder the soul of that infant. Well, Obadiah Holmes and other Baptists denied infant baptism. Well, they had uh, Obadiah Holmes whipped. They had him whipped with a threefold cord and his lacerated his back and his body, so, he was so bloody and the lacerations were so deep he couldn't sleep for several weeks on his back and, and he had to sleep on his elbows and knees. But uh, anyhow, they whipped him with three cords. That would have been 90 lashes. And his back was so bloody and lacerated uh, the, the pain must have been un unbearable. But he told uh, the man that whipped him and those uh, Puritans that uh, uh, tried to uh, execute him uh, that, uh, that uh, says, you have, uh, you have whipped me as with roses. God gave such grace he felt no pain during all that time period. I don't know if God will always do that, but uh, the, God gave wonderful, wonderful grace. Uh, 
and 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 the, the whipping that he suffered, he he said he he says you have you have uh, whipped, whipped me or beaten me as with roses. <laughs> Uh, so the Lord gave wonderful grace. Well, anyhow, look at verse 8. It says, Wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans, this seems to be a general term. It may have been a special class of these uh, soothsayers and sorcerers. Remember all these astrologers, Chaldeans, soothsayers, wise men. These are all people who traffic in the occult. Uh, trying to predict the future by sidestepping God. Any attempt to sidestep God, to, to, to divine the future by sidestepping God is a, some form of sorcery, idolatry, uh, some sort of occultic uh, uh, traffic in witchcraft and that kind of thing. Uh, God's people should have nothing to do with uh, Ouija boards and fortune tellers and zodiacs and all those things. Uh, anyhow, these, uh, these people dominated the ancient world and with the chief counselors of some of these monarchs, and so on. It says, Wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. Now they were probably very jealous of the Jews. Uh, the Jews were placed in powers of, uh, places of power and influence over these wise men. Do you remember how Daniel saved them? And they, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was going to kill them. He was going to kill every one of them <laughs> because they... He felt they were being deceptive, and he, I think he knew they were uh, deceptive. And we don't need to get back into that again. But anyhow, he, uh, he threatened to kill them all. Remember, Daniel went out of his way to save, so don't kill them. Now, if, Daniel, if that Old Testament law had been for the Gentiles, Daniel would have demanded their execution, would he not? That Old Testament law was never meant for the Gentiles, <laughs> That's why uh, he said that he spared them. Nowhere do you ever find God commanding Israel to, to organize armies and march into Gentile territory and into Gentile countries and impose the Levitical law on anybody. Nowhere is the Levit Levitical law ever imposed on Gentiles. <laughs> uh, the, Levit the Levitical law was for Israel only. It wasn't meant for Gentiles. But uh, anyhow... They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Now they're coming to accuse the Jews now. Verse 10, Thou, O king, hast made a decree. If you read the language very carefully, it looks like they're deliberately trying to show that these, uh, these, uh, these Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are being disrespectful to the king. Not only are they being disrespectful, they fail to worship and so on, so they're trying to um, uh, uh, get the uh, Nebuchadnezzar to destroy these, these Jews. So thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso, and whoso falleth not down, remember they're just trying to remind him now of the law that he wrote, again to, I think, deliberately uh, to discredit these Jews. And whosoever falleth not down and worshipeth that he should, not, should be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Uh, perhaps a little, a little strain of jealousy there, is there not? And remember these people you put in power uh, they're disrespecting you. Uh, they're not going to worship. Uh, they're defying you. They're saying, in effect, look, these men are disloyal. 
They're disloyal to you. They're disloyal to the empire. And of course, they ought to be executed. Uh, you can see where they would be very jealous. Daniel had to come and save them and deliver them from being killed by, the, by Nebuchadnezzar. Then gave the proper interpretation and was placed over the, the whole Babylonian empire, second only to Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so you could see why they might be jealous, why they'd be envious and like to see these Jews destroyed. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, giving their Babylonian names, the names of the Babylonian gods. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They've been disrespectful. <laughs> they serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, uh, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Now here we see wise statecraft, do we not? He knew that these, uh, these soothsayers, these Chaldeans, astrologers, these, uh, these uh, people involved in sorcery, uh, could not be trusted, uh, were deceitful, perhaps even suspected their jealousy. And so uh, being wise, he didn't believe the accusation in one sense. He said he asked, he asked them, uh, is this true? That's good. That's always wise, is it not? He didn't assume their guilt. <laughs> he questioned them. And uh, so uh, then uh, uh, do not ye serve my gods. Verse 14 nor worship the golden image which I have set up. Now, if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, and so on, uh, you shall fall down and worship. So he's giving them now a second chance. No doubt he has a great respect for these uh, men. He's placed them very high up, and he's uh, in the empire to serve. The image which I have made, well, well. If you fall down and worship, then that's fine. Everything will be fine. Everything will be well. But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning fire furnace. And who, in the, who is that God? Now, this is, he's getting on dangerous ground now. When you weave into your defiance and your rebellion, a, a defiance of God, you're getting on dangerous ground, are you not? Who is this God? What God can deliver like my gods, Right? What God can deliver like I can't. Uh, shall be cast into the same hour into the midst of the burning furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? He's basically, really, it's a criticism of God, the God of the Hebrews, is it not? Your God can't deliver. Your God, just another God that I've added, I, that I'll add to my pantheon of gods. Uh, at this point, I don't believe he, he believes in the uh, I don't think it. I think it becomes a believer after chapter four, but right now he just uh, he's just sees God as an, another God, and not the God of the Bible. Sixteen Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, "O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter." Now I don't think they're being disrespectful. They're just saying, "Look, we have a conviction. A conviction is something that you die for." A conviction is something that you're willing to sacrifice for. 
If you're not willing to sacrifice for something, if you're not willing to die for something, you just have a preference, right? I think most of us have preferences, not many convictions today. Verse 17, if, thou, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set in. I like to call the book of Daniel the book of conviction. Nowhere in the word of God do you see what, such wonderful conviction. Well, men who believe something, willing to die for something. Boy, we need that spirit. I think we're going to need that spirit soon, don't you? The way things are going in this country. Uh, we, uh, this country's in, in bad shape. And I believe that, that God's people are going to begin to suffer even more persecution. And we talked about this, this cultural Marxism. They, 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 they really want to assault Bible Christianity. Remember out in California, closing all those churches down? Uh, they kept the tattoo parlors open, didn't they? Yeah. And the honky-tonks. And uh, every, uh, Walmart and everybody else. <laughs> I don't mean to compare Walmart to tattoo parlors. But they, uh, they very, were very selective, were they not? But uh, they really kept those churches closed down. Understand this uh, cultural Marxism, it's, there are two things that it's trying to destroy today. They're trying to destroy Bible Christianity. And we talked about An Antonio Gramsci, considered the most important Marxist, theor Marxist theorist in the, 20, in the 20th century. Remember, he, he wrote his prison notebooks. He was uh, put in jail in Italy. He's the founder of the Communist Party in Italy. But he had profound influence. He said, uh, Marxism has failed. The violent Marxism, the, uh, we haven't been able to capture countries. We've got to bring Marxism, in through, Marxism through the back door of cultural Marxism. We've got to capture the culture. And the two biggest problems that prevent uh, con the communist takeover of the world is the family, the nuclear family, and Bible Christianity. Of course, it's Bible Christianity that holds the nuclear family together, is it not? So we need to attack the family. What do you think that all this is about teaching these kindergartners and second graders uh, to question their uh, gender? It's all, it's all meant to assault the nuclear family. The, uh, the, 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 the public schools are sexualizing as well as politicizing our children. And the whole purpose is to assault the nuclear family. All this data processing, you know, you know, watch how these public schools uh, submit these children all kinds of questions. Uh, do you, does your mother and father get along? Uh, does, your, uh, does your father beat you? Uh, does he whip you with a belt? Uh, what, what do you, does your family go to church on Sunday? They got a long list of extensive, extensive questions trying to find out what's going on in the nuclear home. Are they not the nu with nuclear families? And the, whole, the whole thing is designed to assault the, the family, the nuclear family. So if you can get rid of Bible Christianity, get rid of the nuclear family, those are the two biggest obstacles to the capture of America by the cultural Marxists. I think that's what's going on today. I think our White House is dominated by people like that. Our public school system is dominated by people like that. Our government is controlled by, I think, Marxists. And I know that sounds like a conspiracy theory, and I don't see a communist under every bed. I think, there's, I think under a lot of beds, though. Be honest with you. 
But uh, we, need, uh, we need help in America, do we not? We need to pray for our country. But you see the same, you see that this is what's going, what, what, is, uh, what is Nebuchadnezzar trying to do? He, uh, he educates these Hebrews in the culture of uh, Babylon, does he not? He assaults religion. He names them all, uh, under the, gives them new names, Babylonian names. But he wanted to educate them, educate them in the literature and the culture and the values of paganism. And, uh, and he gave them uh, Babylonian, the names of Babylonian gods and so on. I think there's a real parallel there. I think you're going to see an acceleration of this thing. When the Antichrist takes over, I think you'll see uh, 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 this whole culture, I think, is being prepared for that, uh, for the coming of the, of, the, of the Antichrist. Uh, verse 9, but if not, be it, uh, they give their testimony, verses 17, verse 19, then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury. And the form of the visage was changed and so on. So he throws, throws these three Hebrew children into a, a vast furnace. And uh, remember, he has it uh, uh, heated uh, seven times. It's, uh, I think that's perhaps rhetorical language, uh, just to make, this, uh, make it as hot as you can. <laughs> but uh, remember the soldiers that threw the men in. It was so hot that they were burned. They were destroyed. Then Nebuchadnezzar can see into this furnace. Perhaps it was like it, maybe a like a, 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 a cylinder where the top was open and they could, uh, put the, uh, they could fuel it and uh, put, throw, uh, put the Hebrew children into the top of it and they could look over down into the uh, furnace and see what's going on. Well, we know that Nebuchadnezzar, what did he see? He saw those three Hebrew children. They were loosed. <laughs> Remember, they had thrown them in for some reason with all their clothes on and tied them up. But when Nebuchadnezzar looked in, uh, they were walking around loose. Uh, they even their, their, their hair was not singed. They didn't even smell like fire or smoke when they came out. Well, what else did Nebuchadnezzar see when he looked into the fiery furnace? Fourth A fourth person. The King James says the King, uh, the, the Son of God. It, it, I think it was the pre-incarnate Christ. <laughs> uh, they, they saw Christ. But a great Christ is going to always be with us, is he not? And he has sustained these children of God. God rewarded their conviction. Now, by the way, did they say, God, we know for certain God will deliver us? Is that what they said? In a way, yes, but not necessarily from the furnace. As they said, he's able to deliver from the furnace, and he will deliver us from you. Mm-hmm, yes. But they didn't, uh, they said that it's possible God may allow us to suffer though too, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, any, uh, yeah, in the end, God's going to deliver them, right? But uh, sometimes God may call us to suffer. Uh, God called Obadiah Holmes to suffer. <laughs> and uh, all through history, many of the people of God have suffered. They've been put on the rack and tortured and burned at the stake. Uh, uh, seemingly, uh, what did Christ tell Peter there on the shore of Galilee there in John 21? He said, you're going, to, you're going to die a martyr. That's basically what he told him, wasn't it? But he said he didn't necessarily say that John was going to die as a martyr. So some guy, for some reason, we don't know the mind of God and many of these things, but for some reason he allows some to suffer. He allows others to uh, not suffer. 
And uh, look at verse 21. These men were bound in, 20, in their coats and their hosen and garments and so on. And then the, uh, then verse 24, then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto the counselors, did not we put three men bound in the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, true, O king. He answered and said, lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants. Now watch the language carefully. I think God is preparing his heart. He says, ye servants of the most high God. At least he's moving in the right direction. Your God is much higher than my God's. <laughs> my God's uh, can't deliver after this sort. But your God certainly has. And come hither, and they came and forth out of the midst of the fire, and the princes, the governors, and so on. They had no power. Uh, and the princes, the governors, uh, being gathered together, saw these men upon whom bo whose bodies the fire had no power. Nor was a hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. When God delivered, his deliverance is perfect. Amen. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants and trusted in him. Isn't that interesting? God, uh, God delivered them because they trusted. Uh, there's, uh, there's nothing more that God uh, wants in us than the spirit of trust, no matter how to trust God. Uh, there's nothing that uh, Spurgeon says that uh, God... Uh, uh, appreciates a trust in a man's character more than the other thing about a man's character. God admire, God wants you to trust him more than anything else. Well, here, even Nebuchadnezzar said these men trusted in God and God delivered them. Have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses made into a dunghill. Their houses will be leveled and uh, they would be executed. Those that would speak against the God of these Hebrew children. Because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the providence of Babylon. Here we see God wonderfully, wonderfully rewarded conviction. God always rewards conviction sooner or later, but he always blesses conviction. May God teach us what it means to have conviction about things. Uh, I, want, I want God's blessing on my life, don't you? I want to be faithful. All right, let's all bow our heads and we'll be dismissed. Our Father, we're thankful once again for uh, the wonderful truth of your word and for this wonderful book. Indeed, indeed Father God, help us to be people of conviction. Uh, help us to be people of discernment and give us wisdom and good judgment about these things and help us, Father, to, to stand faithful, be true in this, in this day and age. Now, bless the preaching of the word. Uh, we pray, Lord, that, I, that you might uh, speak to souls, even those, Lord, uh, this day who are closest to hell. Pray they might call on thee and trust thee. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.